الجزيرة بودكاست. Hey, Natasha Del Toro here. This is our second episode in a two-part series on Darfur. Part one came out yesterday. Find it in your podcast feed or in the link in our show notes. Now on to today's show. Namat didn't want to leave Darfur where she'd grown up. Back in 2002, the violence had started, but she was still working in development, often with women and other vulnerable groups, which left her vulnerable. And on her way home from work one day, something happened. All of a sudden, someone grabbed me from behind. It was a man attacking her. The more I move, the more he's pulling. So I struggled with him until, like, my middle finger was um, broken. Um, I fell down to the ground and ran away. I was shaking. We went and reported, and they didn't give us a report. The police was laughing. When attacks first started in Darfur, it wasn't clear what was happening, Namat says. And then we realized people who live with us in the city went to school with us have been armed based on their ethnicity. As the divisions based on ethnicity grew clearer, the situation grew more violent. There was racial slurs that tell when they rape women, they reference and tell them, you have to be happy now, you will have an Arab child. The years of systematic violence left hundreds of thousands dead, millions displaced, and the international community outraged, along with a few celebrities. They are proving themselves to be the greatest war criminals of this century, by far. And many of them tried to do something. They tried to save Darfur. So why does it look like the same thing is happening again? UNHCR is here, and someone told us that they have never seen it this bad. They do not have enough money to help people here with anything, and that the international community simply doesn't care enough about this crisis. I lost 22 people from my family, and 15 of them were children. The Sudanese government didn't help us. They see what is happening and just watch us burn. I'm Natasha Del Toro, in from Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. It was very systematic. They are killing people and also taking all of their belongings. They destroyed food and poison uh, wells. People have to flee walking long hours. And even after they flee, they chase them and they kill them. That's how Nama describes what she saw happening in Darfur. And ethnicity was a clear factor, she says. In the very beginning, they targeted the Four and Masalid and the Gawa. The name Darfur means the homeland of the Fur. The Masalid people and the Zagawa are two other peoples that live there. They were singling out people based on their ethnicities. It was very clear. It was very sad and an unbelievable situation. I mean, everything that you're describing just sounds so horrifying and violent. Uh, do you describe what happened in Darfur as genocide? Yes, absolutely. It was very systematic. 
By 2004, friends and colleagues started warning Namat about her own safety. They even encouraged her to leave. So eventually, she did. She came to the United States, and about the same time she arrived, a movement was just getting started to save the place that she called home. People wanted to stop a genocide. The movement was started before I come here in 2004. Maybe you've heard of it. It was simply called Save Darfur. After the Nazi Holocaust, we said, never again. And after Bosnia. And after Rwanda. This week, world leaders gathering at the UN can stop the genocide in Darfur and tell the world that never again starts right now. At its peak, Save Darfur would be an alliance of more than 190 faith-based organizations from many countries, one million activists, hundreds of community groups, and a handful of celebrities committed to peace, protection, and accountability for Darfur. A young Australian sitting in the U.S. named Rebecca Hamilton also got involved. I started off as a student activist. I was heavily engaged in the Save Darfur movement, um, sort of run, running around the country, legislatures on, on divestment campaigns and, and supporting student activism that was starting to build a anti-genocide movement. And the movement had many successes, Rebecca says. What the Save Darfur movement achieved was to elevate an area of the world that is not traditionally within sort of the focus of the US government or any major Western power, to elevate it to the top of the policy agenda and to ensure that there was a steady flow of money that supported humanitarian aid into the region. And that is not an insignificant accomplishment. As for Namad, she was thrilled about Save Darfur. She'd come to the U.S. alone. All of her family, her friends, her colleagues, everyone was still in Darfur. It seemed like a lifeline for them. And she quickly got involved. Many people criticized us, like, oh, these celebrities. I was like, but I think because they have a platform and the media cover them, their voice matters. So they really use their platform to bring attention. And Namat was paying close attention to the effect it had. And she saw the things that changed. That pressure like, kind of prompted President Bush to issue a lot of decisions and being outspoken about it, including sending uh, late Colin Powell then back, was Secretary of State. He visited Darfur, prompted a visit by Kofi Annan to Darfur. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair visited Sudan. All of those visits only raised Darfur's profile further. And the U.S. was in the lead. In 2004, the U.S. was the first country on the U.N. Security Council to call the situation in Darfur genocide. This was former President George W. Bush after seeing satellite images of the destruction a few years later. No one who sees these pictures can doubt that genocide is the only word for what is happening in Darfur and that we have a moral obligation to stop it. Darfur was a humanitarian disaster. But Namat says with all the attention, even that started to change. The humanitarian organization and humanitarian access started to flow into Darfur. 
By 2006, the Save Darfur movement was at its height, and Namat was there. We campaigned, people like, organized sit-in in front of the UN, and people rallied in D.C., in New York, across some uh, African and European capitals. George Clooney, the star of Save Darfur, spoke at the rally in Washington, D.C. It drew 50,000 people. We are here to ask, it's a very simple thing, is for the government in Khartoum to stop randomly killing its own innocent men, women, and children. Stop raping them and stop starving them. That's all we ask. There was like a lot of pressure there, intergovernmental institutions such as the UN. The Council wants Sudan to speed up deployment of the joint UN-African Union peacekeeping mission in Darfur. And by the end of 2007, it seemed like advocacy for Darfur had accomplished a major victory. A joint UN-African Union peacekeeping force was on the ground in Darfur. It was called UNIMED. The deployment of UNAMED, people call for it. A team from the United Nations mission in Darfur, UNAMED, tours the Otash refugee camp near Niala. And an international system of justice and accountability had also been put into place. The Commission of Inquiry was formed, the International Commission of Inquiry that investigated the crimes. It's not easy to get the member state of the UN Security Council to vote on something. Getting all the, the big players to agree, that would not have come easily without sustained pressure from ordinary citizens and an advocate. Omar al-Bashir was the president of Sudan, and in 2009, after the International Commission of Inquiry was formed, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Bashir. The International Criminal Court requested indictment of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir on charges of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes in Darfur. Sudan argues that the charges should be suspended, and the court argues they should be pursued. But to this day, he's avoided the ICC warrant and he's never made it to trial. After the break, what happened after that indictment? Saved Darfur's continuing pursuit of justice and how it, along with the rest of the international community, fell short when it came to Darfur. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women. An unconventional and extraordinary artist. Me? I am Frida Kahlo. A communist revolutionary. Everyone in China knew my face. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A couple of days ago, I got on the line with Nathaniel Raymond from Yale University, and we looked at our computer screens together, at pictures on the other side of the world. I think I see this. It says fire-based damage across El Janena as assessed in satellite imagery. Yeah. And so you'll see a bunch of colored boxes on a photograph, and the white box is from a picture um, of bodies laying in the streets of El Janena. Just a few weeks ago, 
there was a flood of refugees crossing from Janaina and West Darfur into neighboring Chad. An incredibly tragic day seeing refugees streaming in from Al Janaina has turned into a violent night. When we were in the town of Audrey, we heard sustained gunfire and a series of very heavy explosions. Here at the border, once we arrived, we saw injured people, bullet wounds in their back, being loaded into ambulances. And we heard that fighting has now broken out in the village just across the border inside Sudan, just meters away. Nathaniel was showing me satellite images of that same area that he'd been looking at soon after it happened. We have geolocated that picture from the ground of bodies in the street. And we're able to then show, if you look at the colored boxes that are in the satellite image, they match up with the objects around the corpses in the picture. And we can see that some sort of a covering, maybe a blanket or a tarp, has been placed over the bodies. Oh my goodness. And that corroborates reports from the ground that people have been killed and left in the street. And as we go to the next slide... Typically, Nathaniel sends these kinds of images to the U.S. State Department. I'm the executive director of the Yale School of Public Health Humanitarian Research Lab in New Haven. And we monitor using commercial satellites and open source information uh, conflicts in Ukraine and Sudan. Long before he started working on the current violence in Darfur, Nathaniel was looking at other parts of Sudan and South Sudan with George Clooney. Yes, that George Clooney. Back then, satellite imagery was becoming important evidence of possible war crimes. Satellite Sentinel says it shows a fresh wave of violence in the hotly contested region between South Sudan, which just voted for independence, and the government in the north. And who better than celebrities to understand the power of an image? So I went to the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative with a check from George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Don Cheadle, and Matt Damon, the cast of Ocean's Eleven, to build the first civilian satellite surveillance program for protecting civilians. That was civil society-based. And so that was called the Satellite Sentinel Project. Activist John Prendergast, who'd been working on issues in Rwanda, South Sudan, along with Saved Four, was also involved. Got to give all the credit where it's due, and it was George. One night we had spent an entire day in, an, in a week near the border, and people were telling us all these stories of attacks, just terrible, you know, just gut-wrenching stories. And he's like, you know, why can't, if I get chased around by the paparazzi, if I get chased around by Google Earth, wherever I am, wherever I'm staying, why can't we do that? Why can't we give that same? There were high hopes for the Satellite Sentinel project, Nathaniel says, but also big challenges. The problems Nathaniel ran into were much bigger than a few blurry photographs, as it turns out. Part of the appeal of satellite imagery was this idea that the whole world is watching might stop atrocities in Sudan. And in states like Blue Nile and South Kordofan, the fighters did seem to know they were being watched. In fact, not only did it not change their behavior, I think in some cases... Uh, The fact that they were being watched caused them to adapt and to develop new ways of attempting to escape detection. The majority of the attacks launched during that period, the large-scale invasions, 
happened under cloud cover on American long holiday weekends, usually starting on Fridays. Oh, wow. And I think that the Sudan armed forces were attempting to A, run under cloud cover so they couldn't be seen. B, they thought they were attacking Memorial Day weekend, July 4th weekend, Thanksgiving and Labor Day weekend when we weren't working. It was a major blow to the project. We almost wanted to have t-shirts made that said, I broke up with George Clooney. We decided to leave Satellite Sentinel for a very critical reason, is that we thought that we were changing the battle space. Clooney didn't give up. He even got arrested protesting outside the Sudanese embassy in 2012. But Nathaniel stopped working with Satellite Sentinel that same year, after 18 months. Technology is no substitute for political will. That's what I learned from Satellite Sentinel Project. You can show all the pictures you want, but that doesn't mean that people are going to come running. Meanwhile, the momentum to save Darfur was fading. And by 2016, the movement shut down. It was done. Looking back, Rebecca Hamilton, who started as a student activist and is now a professor of law, says what Nathaniel went through was only some of it. It was a symptom of a larger problem. I think the foundational problem with the Save Darfur movement was that it was established on a premise that wasn't actually true. And this premise was if citizens just raise their voices loud enough and convince U.S. government officials to take action, then the U.S. government has the power to stop a genocide. Darfur began only 10 years after the genocide in Rwanda, Rebecca says. People were still fighting that last battle. And even though there were peace agreements, the fighting never entirely ended. Over time, I was hearing more and more these claims that were being made to activists by leaders of the movement, uh, that the work that they were doing was saving lives, meaning that survivors could reclaim their lives in Darfur. And yet when I was going to Sudan, what I was seeing was just greater and greater numbers of people amassing on the Chad-Sudan border in the displaced and refugee camps. And to a volunteer-based movement, that didn't feel like a victory. The people are giving up time, they're juggling work and their kids. They need to feel like what they're doing is actually making a difference. And so it sort of got into this pernicious cycle of seeking these goals that then the leaders of the movement could come back to the activists and say, see, we achieved this without actually following through. Ultimately, Rebecca says, the problem was that Save Darfur didn't listen enough to the Darfuris. There weren't enough people like Namat. These were activists who were really seized with wanting to do the right thing by Darfuris, um, but they were coming at it through the wrong framework that led to the wrong policy prescriptions. And the only way, I think, out of that problem would have been to have Sudanese voices centred. The world moved on, and so did events in Sudan. And by 2019, there was a moment of hope. President Mohamed Bashir has been forced to step down 
For the protesters, though, it isn't enough. They want nothing short of a full civil transition of rule. That the Sudanese were on the way to saving themselves through a revolution. I asked Namat about it. You had the Sudanese revolution where this was a real moment in, in the history of Sudan where there was a hope that democracy would finally arrive. Were you hopeful at that time that democracy would actually come? In 2019, when everyone came together, especially for me and for all of us uh, who are from Darfur, because of the fact that the genocide has been going on for years, it has not been recognized. Not many Sudanese out of Darfur are spoken about. At that time, the chanting was, we are all Darfur. Like, all Sudanese, they admit, they realize and recognize that it's not about the people of Darfur. It is a government that's sitting and perpetrating crimes against every single citizen. I saw the unity, especially with the young people and women being in the forefront of the movement for change, peacefully protesting and demanding change. I was very hopeful, uh, but I was also skeptical knowing the pro and coons of the traditional political party. They always hijack the revolution. And Namat says once she saw that the military would remain in control, even without Omar al-Bashir as the leader, she lost that hope. The way the government was set up, by having the military being in the top leadership, they're controlling everything. So that doesn't show that you that there is a sign of change coming. We've talked to many people from Darfur and other parts of Sudan in the course of reporting these stories, asking them what change could help Darfur now. Because communications were cut, many couldn't respond. Those who could suggested banning mercenaries, creating humanitarian corridors. They want more monitoring to bring justice. But everyone agreed on one thing. The fate of Sudan should be in Sudanese hands not outsiders. And after all these years watching the rise and fall of the outsiders, when they've acted and when they haven't, that's what Rebecca says too. Were you surprised at all when you learned of the violence that erupted just this past April? Unfortunately, not. The moment when the international community should have flooded the space with resources and support um, was right after the revolution and it failed to step up at that time. And from that failure, I think everything else that we have seen now has followed. Do you have any, any level of hope as you are watching what's unfolding? I continue to have hope in Sudanese civil society. You know, for decades and decades, literally, um, the most powerful states in in the world wanted to get rid of Omar al-Bashir, and he was just impervious to any level of sanction, to arrest warrant by the ICC, everything that the international community could throw at him. And at the end of the day, it was Sudanese civil society out in the streets putting literally their bodies on the line. 
that accomplished his overthrow. It is a country that has so much potential, has this unbelievably resilient civil society. And so I have to maintain hope in, in all of that capacity. Um, and I think also the alternative is, is so bleak. Like if you're not going to believe in, in a vibrant future Sudan, then why are you even engaging at all? And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and David Enders, with Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khaled Sultan, and me, Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 